Welcome to the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. Going from animator in the big studios to my own studio of one, to directing the development of yet another new series at Space Station Animation, while continually crafting these passion projects, these 10 dynamic feature film pitches, the objective is always to master the art of telling deeply meaningful stories. Today I have with me the wonderful Ed Hooks. If you don't know about Ed Hooks, he has an amazing history in acting and filmmaking, and he he was an actor in several plays in New York, and then went into doing TV, soap operas, film, and then became a teacher of acting, where he taught several people who also went on to Broadway, film, TV, etc., and then gradually he came into animation at DreamWorks, where he was... I brought on to mm. teach animators how to act. But that was what's the first time that he actually started to fail as an acting teacher. And he was wondering why, what's going on? Then he realized that teaching for animation, acting for animation, doesn't involve the person learning to act and use their voice themselves. It's the thinking, the thought process. So that has led to the books, as you can see the poster behind Ed, of Acting for Animation, editions one, two, three, and four, and five is coming soon. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that, Ed? Oh, no, I just am. I'm just so pleased to be here. I think what you're doing is terrific. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Your book, when I read it, it was one of those books that seemed to open my mind and change the direction of my career, I feel. Yeah, it was fantastic. It has such concise, really powerful information in it. And um, just for your knowledge and for my listeners, next week I'm going to be speaking at the first Salt Lake Animation Expo, where I will be giving a speech about elevating the animation art form based on the things that I've learned from you and from this entire journey. So, Oh, well, that's, that's very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. For those who are listening who haven't heard about this, I have had several different interactions with Ed over email. We've written long, long, long email threads about our thoughts about films and the process of getting solid story structure, solid acting structure into a film. Quickly, how would you describe acting structure, just so we can catch everybody up to speed on what we're going to be talking about? Well, in a, in a, in a nutshell, uh, acting is... Uh, is doing something with purpose, and uh, while you're overcoming some obstacle, there's uh, obstacle conflict. There's uh, you can you can have a conflict with yourself, conflict with the situation, or conflict with another character, yeah, or some combination of that. But Aristotle said that in the Poetics, he said every human action has a purpose. Yeah, that really is what acting is. It's the characters need to have a purpose. If you're the actual actor yourself on stage or in front of the camera, then you're the one that has to have purpose. And so this is the main difference between the way that animators perceive an acting and the way that actors perceive acting. So it's uh, animators are, uh, they're not really the actor. The on-screen uh, character is the actor. Uh, from the audience's perspective, Mickey Mouse is the actor, not Walt Disney. So for an animator, the relationship to that animated character is one of empathetic direction. The animator does not need to train to actually act on, on film with, uh, with Robert De Niro 
or 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 Kate Blanchett. You, but animators need to understand acting theory. They need to understand how acting works, and that's yeah. what I brought to the party with uh, with my book and with the master classes uh, that I have. Uh, I believe that I was the first one to try to apply classical acting theory uh, to animation. And I used to, you know, I taught actors for years. I had acting studios in Los Angeles and San Francisco. And uh, so I've been around acting for over 50 years now, if you're ready. It's amazing. I'm surprised. Yeah. (laughs) And it's such a... It's such a depth of experience that uh, I hope we can tap into today. Also, you talked about acting structure, which when our our listeners hear that, and when I first hear that, I think, okay, yeah, yeah, acting structure. I, I know what that is. But acting structure mm-hmm. is missing from, you know, hundreds of feature films that are being released yes, throughout the years. Uh, mainstream, oh, yeah. big budget animated films from big companies. We won't point out to specific films, but they're missing this acting structure for sometimes at least the first 15 minutes, you know, for a lot because there's no obstacle existing for the character, right? The character, you can't really tell what the character's objective is. You can't really, maybe the object they're doing actions, but what are those actions? What are the objectives behind those actions? And which gives meaning to the actions. Yeah. The audience doesn't have to, uh, know specifically what the objective is, right? Uh, but the actor uh, should know. Yeah, you should be able to freeze frame a uh, character, an actor, at any time, and say, "What are you doing?" And they should be able to answer in theatrical terms. This is the objective that I'm pursuing. This is the action that I'm playing to achieve that objective. And this is the conflict or obstacle that I'm overcoming. The the big problem that you see uh, a lot of times is you see characters or actors that are just talking. Uh, They're just talking and they go on and on. And they don't, you can clearly, they don't have really an objective. They're just delivering information. This is, again, the difference between actors and animators. Actors are trained to think in terms of uh, objective uh, purpose. And motivation. And like sometimes I'm, you'll hear them say, what's my motivation? You know, <laughs> they'll want to know. What's it's my like, motivation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What am I doing? That's that's really, what am I doing? The way that it works with, uh, uh, with emotion is that all humans, of course, are the same everywhere in the world. And uh, all humans have the same basic core emotions. Uh, there's seven of them, happy, sad, angry, and there's seven core emotions. There's thousands of feelings, which are combinations, contextual uh, combinations of, of emotions and judgments. And the, the key to acting is to understand that emotion itself is not actable. So especially in animation, I see this problem. It started all the way back in the 1920s with the, in the early days. They used to think that if you could show a character had emotion, that that was good acting. <laughs> and in fact, emotion is not actable. Emotion tends to lead to action. And acting is doing the, the definition of acting is acting is behaving believably 
in pretend circumstances for a theatrical purpose. And that last part, theatrical purpose, is very important because there's a difference between regular reality <laughs> and theatrical reality. Yes. <laughs> you know, regular reality is what you get at the mall, is what you get at the supermarket. In regular reality, you show 100% of everything. Theatrical reality, you're only showing the part that exposes information about the narrative and about the character. Now, one more thing is really important is that acting has almost nothing to do with words. A lot of people don't understand this. They think that it's that actors are trained to deliver these words. <laughs> and they are. They are. Uh -huh. But acting has to do with intention. If you think about it in terms of a symphony, the power is not in the rising of the music so much as it is the pause, the beat the thought in between acting, the power in acting is in between. And there's one more thing I can tell you, and then I'll, I'll let you just talk and make questions. There's a di the difference between stage and film mm -hmm. is that stage plays are all about words. So when you go to a stage play, you tend to watch the person who's talking. A movie is about moving, is why they call them movies. <laughs> and so, in a, yeah, so in a movie, you tend to watch the person who's listening. So in movies, the editors learn to cut to reaction shots. We want to pay a lot of attention to reaction. So this fits perfectly with acting has very little to do with words is that uh, and it, that you're you're looking for the reaction you're looking for thoughts yeah. looking for intention wow so anyway that's just a a little mini lesson there yeah and, uh, well, it was great there's actually, a lot of gold in there a lot of things that i um didn't learn in your book actually <laughs> so that's pretty cool like and and part of that is like when you read a book you you experience it for the first time, you get a lot of new information, then you start to apply it to things, right? And then when you reread that book, then you start to, you're you're different. You're a different person when you read that book. So you start to see things in a different way. And that's yeah. possibly what, what I just got from your, uh, but I love that insight about the film cuts to the person listening. And I think yeah. that is present in the book, but I just, hearing you explain it that way was extremely great. Um, I also, a couple days ago, uh, I won't say who it was, but I listened to a behavior analyst analyzing somebody in a court case. And he was pointing to several things that he was seeing her do on her face and her actions that were pointing to her lying. And one of the interesting things was she kept she kept trying to frown. <laughs> like, she kept trying to force a frown. He's like, what this actress doesn't, or this person who's acting doesn't realize is that that's actually not the reason for a frown. Frown is just the, the face relaxing or the face yeah. feeling such deep sadness that it's no longer expressing. Um, and he, he pointed out different things on the face that would actually happen if the, the person was being sincere. And I think that we see that happen all the time in animation where we're like, oh, yeah, this person's sad. So they need to have a frown on their face. But <laughs> it's not believable. Yeah, yeah. there's a, uh, a man named Paul Ekman. Uh -huh. 
Uh, last name is spelled E-K-M-A-N. Okay. And he, he created something called the Facial Action Coding System. Uh, I'm, I recommend uh, to you there's a book. And, and he's taken apart all of this business of the facial muscles and the expressions and expression of emotion in the human face. Yeah. Uh, he's, a, he's, the, he's the expert in this subject. Uh, my guess is that whoever it was that you were watching that was talking to this uh, was very familiar with Paul Ekman. They learned they used Ekman when they were making Gollum in Lord of the Rings in the very uh, very first one. They used his work, and yeah. I, I had the opportunity to talk with Paul Ekman several times, uh, and he's a very interesting man. What you're saying is true. One of the big things to understand about facial expression is that adults are very different than children. Uh, and I, I all the time tell people, you know, be specific about your audience. Who, who is your story? Who are, you, who are you playing for? Because the younger the audience, the more archetypal the character can be. Children, villains look like villains for children, you know? They twirl their mustache and cackle and, they look, they, you know, they're, they're bad people. Adults understand that a villain may not look at all like a villain. Yeah. A villain may look like your priest. We adults, what we do is we present to the world the way that we want to be perceived. <laughs> we really are very protective about our true emotion. Uh, even, with, even with our romantic partners, and a lot of times it's for all the best reasons. You know, you're having a bad day and you don't want to upset somebody. They say, they say, hey, how's it going? You say, oh, great. Yeah, going great. Inside, you're having a terrible day. <laughs> you know? And uh, it's a lie. It's a lie. But this is the way adults are. A child is having a bad day and the, he's not going to lie about it. A child is going to, they wear it on their sleeve. They're just, mm. And you're going to right away, the adult is going to say, what's wrong, partner? <laughs> you know, you're going to read it on the face. Yeah. The facial animation. And I mean, actors don't think about what their face is doing. Animators do, though, because they have to draw it. They have to make it. You know, they actually have to make it graphically happen. But actors, if an actor was thinking about his facial movement uh, while he was acting, it'd be an acting error. Yeah. <laughs> it's true that's very very true yeah and and acting is about being in the moment right when you're an actor but when you're an animator it's about thinking what the moment's about like what is this character actually feeling dig past like you said past the lines that are being said to the subtext what is actually going on with this character this character may be talking about the weather but they're you know intensely worried about that person across the street who's you know approaching a, a little child or something you know and so yep. yeah it's all about actually getting in the head of the character and and digging down a few levels deeper well again the difference between actors and animators you're right uh, scott about the actors work in the present moment here's the key for actors we're talking stage and movie actors acting is very stressful you're up on a stage or in front of a camera and you've got 500, 1,000 people, even millions of people, I've acted for millions. They, they've done tests with performers 
on Broadway, they wired them up to test their bodily functions. Before an actor enters, before that opening curtain, the right there, the, uh, an actor's bodily functions are roughly equivalent to that of a fighter pilot. You're <laughs> on. Yeah. Every, every ounce of you is alert. Every ounce of you. <laughs> and, and what happens is this tightness, this anxiety gets in the way of, of free-flowing emotion. And so actors spend a lot of time in training working on sensory isolation. Uh, we actually work on seeing, on touching, on listening, hmm. to be attentive. Because hmm. if you're fully focused on something, you tend to be more relaxed. Animators don't work in the present moment. Animators have 24 frames make a second or an illusion of a present moment. Mm -hmm. So they don't need to worry about any of this stuff. That was a lot of what I brought to the party because uh, before me, if an animators want to learn about acting, they, was, they were told, go take an acting class. But <laughs> of course, acting classes are training actors to act with Robert De Niro. Yeah. Animators don't need to do that. And a lot of animators are shy yeah, uh, this is the last thing they want to do is get up in front of a camera for their skill set. They need to understand action, objective, conflict, how emotion interacts with physical uh, action, all these things, empathy. They need to understand storytelling concept. There's a lot of things like this, what the eyes do, blink patterns, all this kind of thing. But they don't need to train to act in a scene with a with a trained actor. Mm -hmm. They may like to, some of them do, some of them like to do it. And I tell them, fine, good. If you like to do it, do it. But it's not essential for the skill set. Yeah. And a lot of us will film reference and uh, I feel my own reference because I have a lot of stage acting experience, but there are mm -hmm. other people who don't want to film their own reference. And so they'll grab somebody like me or somebody who's willing to act in front of the camera and have them try mm -hmm. some things out and that sort of thing. But at the same time, I think it's very useful to know these things of like, if I'm going to do that reference, I need to have the objective in mind of the character. I need to kind of put myself in that character for a bit, see what happens. And then mm -hmm. what happens with animation also is we take that reference and we we don't use it verbatim. We make discoveries. We say, oh, that was an interesting thing that there that I did with my eyebrow or that was an interesting way I tilted my head or something like that. And we take those things and we bring them in and we start to build that performance. So mm -hmm. it's very, uh, it's a very, very interesting process, but it's, it's a lot of fun. And it's, again, it's really cool to see what you brought to the table. Something that's also interesting. I noticed that you write these in-depth film analysis. You're mostly analyzing the acting, but that does tie in very tightly to the story structure where without good story structure, the good performances aren't able to emerge. And you'll you'll write these things down and you show them to people in the industry. And all the time, even at the biggest studios, you get the response, oh, Ed, it's just the cartoon. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've actually heard that recently, too, in different things that I've been working on, different people saying that. And, and how do we get rid of that? And why should we get rid of that saying it's only a cartoon? Yeah, as a man, I tell you. You've you you're hitting a nerve. Uh, 
No, I mean, I this is uh, this is what I hear. You take a a, a movie like the Disney movie Frozen, for mm-hmm. example, and the antagonist in that movie is named Hans of the Southern Isle, and fifteen minutes before the final credits roll. Hans of the Southern Isle stands up and announces that he is a sociopathic murderer uh, and that his, he's been that way all along and that his objective is to kill Elsa and take over the kingdom. And he says, this has been my objective all along. <laughs> well, you go back and you review every scene that that character's in in the movie, which I've done, mm-hmm. and there's no foreshadowing. There's no indication that this character's like that yeah. until the very end of the movie. What I would point so out, there's I, even the opposite. They have yeah. a moment They have a moment where Anna's walking away, and he looks up under from under the boat that he fell into the water under and smiles like he loves her. Like, why would somebody who's coming in to kill her sister or her do that, you know? Well... What I understand is that they changed villains in the middle of the production. Uh, they started out, I think the original villain was supposed to be Elsa. Yeah. But somewhere along the way, see, this is a big difference between animation and, and uh, live action. In these big animated movies, they often start animating before they've got a full script. Yeah, that's true. Oh, uh, and so lot, Ed- what I was saying is that I uh, did speak to my friends that made this movie over at Disney. And I told them, I said, the the antagonist doesn't have any foreshadowing. I said, you know, he's not a very well-developed character. And they say to me, well, Ed, this, this movie won an Academy Award and it was turned into a musical on Broadway. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful movie. And I say, well, your antagonist doesn't have any foreshadowing. The character is not well-developed. And they say, it's animation. As if there's some get-out-of-jail-free card uh, (laughs) about animation. I contend there should not be a get-out-of-jail-free card. Animation should be held to the same standard as live action. But uh, the fact is that a lot of animation, the reviewers, the critics, they cut them a lot of slack. They say, oh, well, you know, it's another Disney movie. Hmm. You know, this sort of stuff. Oh, it's from Pixar. And, and so they stop being uh, critical. If Martin Scorsese did something like that, where a villain would had no foreshadowing, they would pin him to the wall. <laughs> yeah, uh, you see, uh, live action directors wouldn't get away with this. Uh, so I think this is part of the development of the animation industry. That's what I think. We are right now sort of in the early days of adult themed animation. Mm-hmm. And I think the quality of the stories is going to improve. The characters are going to become much more interesting. Also, we're getting more independent production. The the ranks of storytellers is opening up to an international market. We're getting, you don't have to spend Hollywood movie money. 
Yeah. You know, they spend $200 million to make a movie. You don't have to spend that kind of money to make a movie. So I think that we're right now at, in a very fluid state with the development of animation as an art form. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an exciting time. It's a really exciting time for people to be working in the field of animation. That's what I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's what I've been pushing with my career. It's it's very interesting. I could have been at uh, one of the biggest studios, Disney. Um, there were some opportunities that opened up. But at that point, I was also creating my short film layers. And I was starting to build these things that I felt were deeply meaningful. And I thought, which do I choose? Well, the, the deeply meaningful route, right? That's why we're here is is not just to be happy and to pursue our bliss, but to to have purpose and meaning and give that to others and share that with others and and make a difference in other people's lives. And and so, you know, I, yeah. I kind of had to shelve that dream for a bit, but now it doesn't seem like I shelved the dream at all. It seems like the original Indeed. tension is now my main thrust, you know? <laughs> so. You're absolutely right. I, I teach that uh, artists, animators are shamans, shamanistic. Your, your roots go all the way back to shamanism, to, yeah. to, to the tribe. Throughout history, there have been shamans, the people whose job it is to look into the darkness and to then come back and tell the tribe what they saw. Uh, in many ways, uh, theater and religion are joined at the hip. They have the same mandate, <laughs> which is which is to help the members of the tribe live successfully on earth. Yeah. And the religion says that God is infallible. You should God will give you the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule and all that. And so if you want to know what to do on earth, just listen to, to God. And the theater says, well, we think that the best way to do it is to just learn from the successes and failures of your fellow man, your fellow tribes people. But both of them, you know, the theater came from religion yeah. in the first place. Yeah. They're, they're very closely associated. They are. And I think that animators and artists uh, of all kind are, should get in touch with their shamanistic side. Yeah. Because you have a job to communicate. If you put a circle in the dirt, the tribe will come. And you better have something more to tell them than look at how good I can do hair and water. <laughs> you see? I love that. <laughs> oh, look. Because they don't care. Yeah. They don't care. I tell, I, the, the fact of the matter is, if you ask yourself, here's the thing about us humans, which is really fascinating to me. Our brain is roughly six times as large for our physical size as it is in other animals. Other animals, their brain is in proportion to their physical size. Human brain is six times bigger and if you believe in evolution, then you say, well, what, why? Well, it's because we have to learn our storytelling, our, our survival skills from stories. We can't learn everything from direct experience like a lion or a tiger. We have to worry about what's happening in the Ukraine. 
We have to worry about whether or not the guy moved in next door is strange. <laughs> we, have to, we have to worry about a lot of things, about the environment. Uh, there's a lot of things. And so we are, by nature, storytelling, problem-solving animals. We get up every day and there's chaos. And what we do is we organize, we make order out of chaos. Yeah. And, and starting from when we are four years old, between four and five years old, humans develop what they call, psychologists call it a theory of mind. And this is where we become aware that other humans have a different perspective. And from that age, we become keenly interested and what other people think and feel and do and how they deal with stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the whole reason why people watch plays. It's the whole reason why they watch movies. Yeah, They're actually looking to see what one character does to deal with some situation. Either they succeed or they fail. And you can keep throwing obstacles up, keep putting stuff in there as a storyteller. But basically, it's one person. It's like when we sat around the campfire as cavemen and we talked about the hunt. We want to know, did he get the bear or did the bear get him? Yeah. And then we learn. Yeah. yeah well, no, unfortunately, the bear got him. You say, okay, oh, okay. Well, then I got to be careful that I don't do what he did. That's how we learn. <laughs> yeah, survival information. Survivals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the kind of animals we are. Yeah. So um, I'm a big fan of Brian McDonald. He's another person who gives lectures at Disney Pixar DreamWorks. A amazing screenwriter too, and he uh, he's been on the show. And he uh -huh. he he posits that we're not really in a great age of filmmaking. Period. Like there there was a, a surge of everybody wanting to make everything spectacular and look amazing up on screen, but mm -hmm. uh, that we've lost touch with with storytelling and what solid story structure is. What do you feel about that? That Well, it's because theory. we're trying. Well, what's happened is that animation got hijacked and turned into a marketing tool, hmm. especially in the United States. Yes. I remember before there were streamers, before there was DVDs, it used to be if you made a movie and you had to, you know, had to pay for itself out of the box office at the cinema, a movie generally had to make five times its cost yeah. in order to break even. Well, you got a movie that costs $200 million. You got to make a billion dollars yeah. here in yeah. order to break even. Yeah. And so what happens is these movies, especially the, the Hollywood ones, tend to want to channel the audience into purchasing merchandise and theme parks and uh, and then the spinoffs, they actually call the movies tent poles. They call them content. Now, I'm yeah. hoping, I'm hoping that with, with the world opening to international storytelling, that we're going to get more legitimate just stories without people trying to sell stuff. I get um, one of the films that I'm analyzing in the um, the next edition of Acting for Animators is this movie called Flea, uh -huh. F-L-E-E, -E, which, uh, which is an animated documentary. 
Yeah. Which is almost an oxymoron. Documentary. <laughs> yeah. But it's a very interesting film uh, about a, uh, it uses two different styles of animation and it mixes it in with clips from old newsreels and documentary footage so that you essentially have one foot on the ground all the time. You know that this is real, even though it's animation, which is signaling your brain that it's pretend, mm -hmm. you know that what's happening here is real. And I think, I mean, this is the stuff that Ari uh, Folman in uh, Israel uh, with Waltz, with Brashear. Yeah. Uh, this is the type of stuff that he's been doing. And now we have Flea and uh, it was uh, nominated for the Academy Award. And uh, got, as a matter of fact, it was nominated in three different categories of Academy Award as documentary, as a, as a film. And there was one other uh, but it's very awarded, uh, very uh, special. And so I analyzed that and I put it in there. Here's the thing, Scott. Yeah. You, you, Scott, and fellow artists, fellow animators are pioneers. I, I believe that you should be standing on Walt Disney's shoulders. You don't want to sit in his lap. The people my age in their 70s yeah. have done what they're going to do, and they've done it well. They've yeah. created a marvelous industry. Yeah. But you and, and your whole generation have got to take us to places we haven't been. I believe that animation is the most underused, underappreciated art form huh. of the 21st century. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be grandiose. Yeah, I yeah. I, I think I, I agree with you. And I could see why some people wouldn't, because they would say, okay, well, well, Ed, um, look at all the content being created. Yeah. Like, look at Scott. He's working at this company that they crank out, you know, three 24-minute videos a week, at least, yeah. three to five, you know. And then every month we come out with a with a seven-minute episode, and that's cranking out content that's that's going out on YouTube, and millions of people are viewing it. I mean, how could it be underutilized and under underappreciated? And again, we're going from your point of view. We're going toward the the power of storytelling, not just using it as a marketing tool or as a way to get views or content or a way to grow a, a, a brand, but it's. It's stories that really make a difference in people's lives that really help us exactly. as human beings and not just to sell products. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it's a matter of you don't need to make a movie in order to sell stuff uh, to your audience. If you think of it in a shamanistic way, people are very interested in the stories. And what you've heard over and over again, and certainly I've heard, is that there is a weakness in storytelling skills. I have taught in over 35 countries. I've, I've, I've had hundreds of thousands of animation students, and I have found universally that there's a weakness in storytelling skills. But you can't separate acting from storytelling. No, you can't. This is what, this is what Stanislavski brought to the party. Yeah. He, he taught script analysis. Yeah. Yeah, Konstantin Stanislavski. Yeah, he said you should be able to break down the script into bits, and each bit has structure, and you put all of them together, 
like the beads on a necklace. And then at the end, you have a movie. Yeah. You have a play. Well, and I, and so, I imagine yeah. that, um, and this is part of my speech that I'm giving next week, but spoiler alert here, here's part of it. But you look at um, Aesop and all of his fables that lasted, they stood the test of time. He wasn't mm -hmm. the only person telling stories back then when he mm -hmm. was telling his stories, but somehow, for some reason, those stories lasted. And then you have Shakespeare. There was a boom in theater. Why don't we hear about the other playwright, playwrights in that day? We only hear about Shakespeare. You know, and yeah. then we had vaudeville. Vaudeville was this huge explosion that reminds me of YouTube, where you had all these people saying, look at me, look what I can do. Hey, hey, look at me, look yeah. at me. And from there, emerging Charlie Chaplin, whose book is on your shelf back there. You know, Charlie Chaplin was a brilliant storyteller. And that's yeah. what hel helped him stand the test of time and helped him emerge a as a great artist who elevated yeah. the art form. I, yeah. I agree with you completely. I think it's going to be a very successful talk. That you're giving, hopefully, <laughs> yes, that's no, what we're going for. Your perspective, your perspective is is right. It, we are, we humans. If you really want to understand all this, you just have to keep going back. Humans are the only animal that, in juvenile play, can pretend to be somebody other than who we are. Huh. No other animal can do it. Yeah, we're the only animal that can know something is wrong for us and still do it. Yeah. So we run around, <laughs> life, yeah, I love run that. around in life making mud puddles all over the place and then having to correct and fix what we did yesterday. I mean, all of us will say, well, if I had that to do again, I'd do it. We're storytelling animals. We want to learn from each other's mistakes and successes. That's the secret to a good story. That's it. Yeah. Once you've got that, the rest of it is uh, window dressing. Yeah. Well, and I think we get in our own way by wanting to show off, right? Wanting to show how great of hair we can do or great water simulations or um, sure. look at how we can put this clever. I, I know that there's a, this phase in screenwriting that has lasted for years and still going on is there's got to be a twist, you know? It's like, yeah. well, well, what's the twist for? If you look at Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, those twists were in the film from the beginning or in his short film, pretty much. Yeah. But in the episode of... Oh, the, the little boy. I can't remember the name of it, but he he wishes people into a cornfield. That's obvious, like what they're doing right from the beginning. And yet the story felt like it had a really amazing twist yeah. because he, Rod Sterling was an amazing writer and he knew what he was doing and he was showing human behavior and and he was doing it very yeah. simply and not getting in the way of the story, not trying to show sure. off. <laughs> exactly. Also, one more element, which is worth mentioning, and that is that. You know, Samuel Coleridge, his concept of the willing suspension of disbelief. Mm. That's the other part of this thing. Your audience knows that everything is pretend. Yeah. But then they pretend that they don't know that. And, and this is so that they can empathize and can go on the trip with the actors on stage, with the storyteller. If you look at Walt Disney... Walt Disney was masterful with this idea. In the movie uh, Pinocchio, <laughs> it opens up with a, with a cricket. Yeah. And the cricket is singing and talking and speaking English into the camera, reading from a big book. The audience says, well, crickets don't do any of those things. But in this story, that's what's going to be. The crickets are going to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Then 15 minutes later, when the puppet comes to life, the audience says, well, puppets don't come to life. But, you know, 
this is the kind of story where the crickets read and they sing and they get, so, okay, okay, okay. So the puppet comes to life. It's, it is the willing suspension of disbelief. And I find this concept, I mean, I, the, they, they violate it in some awfully big movies, uh, you know. You need to tell the audience up front what are the parameters for the willing suspension of disbelief of this story. Yeah. You don't start a story and then 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes from now, give them a different reality. Yeah. Which is what they did like with this, uh, what is that, the, the current movie from uh, from Pixar, the one about the musician. Um, uh, soul. Soul. That's what they did there. It, yeah. It, they establish, they establish a, uh, a re, uh, how to suspend your disbelief. It's the real world, real classroom, real people obeying the laws of physics. And then 15 minutes in, the guy falls down a, a manhole and he's in another reality. Now the audience says, they say, what, 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 what happened? I already had my suspension of disbelief. And then they're saying, oh, no, no, this is, we, you, we want you now to accept that there's another reality. That is not strong storytelling structure. Yeah. It's just not good structure. Well, then there's a third reality after that, as we discussed, which is the, the first reality. Thing. There's a third reality, too, that's introduced after the after yeah. the life before. Yeah. And it's the it's the reality from before. But now there are new rules. Exactly. And yeah. You know, when you're telling a story, think of it as 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 the tribe. Think of it as a circle in the dirt. And the tribe, just tell them, this is the kind of story that I'm going to tell you today. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they're not going to challenge you. They're going to say, okay, 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 I got it. And then you tell them the story. And it's, it is, you don't, the audience is not a lurker. The audience is a participant. Yeah. And the relationship between the actors and the audience is um, almost sexual, actually. It's there. You're aware of the audience in the same way that lovers are aware of each other. You you you're aware of your effect. Yeah. The I and, I heard somewhere that, um, and I read mm-hmm. I read it years ago, but it was that your brain actually because of the way we're wired. When you're watching that character on screen, when it's happening in the moment, you actually can't differentiate yourself from that. Um, yes. it's, it's once you say, oh, yeah, this is just a movie. And sometimes when you're watching a scary movie, you will say that, right? Oh, this is just a movie. It's just exactly. a movie, right? You'll remind yourself, but you're you're actually part of it. You're actually becoming one with it. And I think that's what you're describing. Exactly. So it's like a, a movie, whether it's live action or animated, is like a flight simulator. Mm-hmm. And so you go to the, when you sit down in your seat in the cinema, you open the door of the flight simulator, you get in. And it's got all the controls of the of the aircraft. And this thing takes you up in the air and you can go through storms and you can go overseas and you can you can do all they can. Your left engine can go out and you have to deal with it. There's all these things that can happen, but you're safe. Yeah. Yeah. You're safe. You take a trip and then at the end of it. You open the door and you get out and you haven't risked anything, but you've taken a great trip and you've learned from and you've that gained, trip. Yeah, you've gained something. You've gained. That's the help whole you survive thing. better. You and I, 
for us, this concept is, is so clear. But you'd be surprised how many people don't get this. Well, that's what I feel about your your work and Brian McDonald's also. Brian McDonald's book is, I think, even maybe thinner than yours. They're about the same thickness. It's like you, mm-hmm. you would expect a book like this for how I felt when I read it, right? You'd expect right. a thick, thick book that was like, this is the amount of knowledge I gained. But then when I look at it, I think, wait, this is really simple. This yeah. is really clear. And so what it requires me to do is continue to come back and revisit it. Continue to come back and say, how do I use this tool again? Oh, yeah, I need to use this tool again. And, and for some reason, we human beings, if we think we're going to make something new and different, it has to be complex. And so exactly. and so we'll, we'll go and we'll look at all these areas and it's like, no, no, just come back to these basics, these things that actually work and they always work and they're powerful and they unlock potential in people and they unlock the imagination. Use these things over and over again. You're exactly right. And what I what I have in mind all the time, every class I teach, every book I write, that you cannot understand the concept of furniture until you first understand table and chair. <laughs> that, 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 yeah. that, that all knowledge is hierarchical this way. Now, I, and I'm sure you too, Scott, you and I can talk about Danish design. We can talk about Japanese design. Okay, that's fine for you and me. But if we have somebody in the room that's working on table and chair, then we need to, we got to talk to them about tables and chairs before we get to Danish design and Japanese design. And when I teach, I'm always mindful of that. I'm always I'm always looking around to see, have I got any table or chair people in here? Uh, because I, I, I will, I'm perfectly happy to talk about Danish design if I've got a room full of people that know it. This is the key. It's the key to, it's also the key to storytelling. All yes. of it comes together. That's great. Well, usually I end the show by asking the get wiser moment, which is, what is your recommended approach for getting the greatest clarity of truth into a story? It seems like you've already answered that. <laughs> um, I think that you, you, the individual, are the standard for what's true. You know what's true. When you tell a story, you know whether or not it resonates. In general, good storytelling feels like you're exposing. Yeah. It feels like you're telling a secret. Yeah storytelling yeah and it's scary times, it's risky yeah and there's those times when you feel like surely i'm the only one who has this kind of feeling nope nope we've all got it <laughs> and that's when you know you're on the trail of a good story i just have really enjoyed talking with you i, I you know it's a, your 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 show your mandate the kind of people that you have on here, you're doing something very special, Scott. You really you. truly are. And I am privileged to spend this time with you. Oh, I feel very good about it. I feel equally the same. And I wish we could have gone on longer because I just feel like there's this depth of knowledge that you have that hopefully mm-hmm. through more conversations in the future, I can continue to to pull from that and to use that to really create a new generation of filmmaking that elevates the art form. Um, that doesn't just have to be for adults. I mean, we, we talked at length about Grave of the Fireflies and My Neighbor Totoro, um, films that were made for young audiences that also have a huge impact. So 
thank you so much, Ed, for uh, for being on here. And until next time, I hope we all get a little wiser. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for, for watching, watching the Directing Animation Livecast, hosted by Scott Weiser, audio version edited by Kira Horowitz, copyright Scott Weiser, LLC 2022. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and ring that notification bell.